Greetings and welcome to Daniel Sherson. He's a retired major from the Army, and he's here to talk about a, a wide variety of things. But I just read a new article of his about Secretary of Defense appointee Lloyd Austin, and his uh, piece is called A Certain Kind of Diversity. And I also saw his tweet yesterday about this article, and it was intriguing, so I tracked it down. And I've been trying to track him down for a while, and now we finally caught him here. Um, one of my viewers and listeners suggested that he come on the show, so that's that's why I found you in the first place. So welcome, and thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, your viewer uh, who likes me, I, I've been described as a, a niche taste uh, or an acquired one, but so kudos to your viewer. Yeah, well, so my viewers are niche, and I'm niche. We we just got past a thousand subscribers though on our YouTube channel, so that's good. But we're still pretty niche, I'd say. And uh, one of the tenets of the show, the things that they'll crawl out of the woodwork to defend is the idea that both parties are terrible and there's no hope with either of them. And then we have the neolibs, the shitlibs come in there and try to tell us that we need to vote for corporatists under these um, unprecedented circumstances. So then we're, we're all trying to set them straight. And I'd say that's a niche for sure, because it seems like a lot of lefties, uh, uh, pundit-wise, were telling us we need to vote for corporatists under these conditions. And we've been falling for that for 100 years. So that's one thing that holds us all together in, in the small army is that we don't want anyone to try to talk us into voting for neoliberals under any circumstances. Which brings us pretty um, nicely to the appointee, the most recent appointee. I've written up, or videoed about uh, Michelle Flournoy. I, I read an article on air called um, Angel of Death, Michelle Flournoy, Angel of Death. So at first I was thinking, oh, this is going to be a lot better. How would you characterize that? Well, it's interesting. Every time that I'm trying to focus on, you know, writing an article about some, you know, minor light matter like the Horn of Africa and the Tigray crisis, uh, <laughs> Biden appoints some new, right, uh, polite warmonger, right? Some some diverse imperialist. Uh, and it's it's frustrating because, you know, you mentioned that one of the tenets of the program is that, you know, you will not find salvation from the Republican or the Democratic Party. What I found, especially in the the Trump era or in the post-Trump election era, is that like my hate mail has changed. Um, I've always gotten it, but it was always from the right when I first started writing. And so it was, uh, you hate America, you're a communist, etc. And uh, that was, I was comfortable with that. I expected that. I, I, I know they hate me. And I knew what they were going to when I spoke out. But more recently, the lion's share comes from the sort of polite wing of the Democratic Party. And it's the establishment types, fairly privileged, and they say, "Oh, you're you're not you. We were wrong about you. You're not a communist. You're not a lefty ra radical revolutionary. You're secretly MAGA, right? You're a secret Trump supporter because why? Because you you know train your critique at the Biden bunch or the Democratic Party. So that's what I've really been doing for the last month or so. It's dominated my writing. I didn't want it to, but uh, these appointments, uh, what what do they tell us? Okay, if you're from the left, let's say, let's say you're from the progressive base, the fired up progressive base that Biden needs, right? Bernie's base and to the left of that. The, these appointments are a big middle finger to you. 
They're a big middle finger, even to like the more establishment-ish squad wing, Bernie wing, a big middle finger, the appointments. They said, no, you will get nothing. We won't even give you like housing and urban development. Like how is, I mean, why isn't Bernie or Elizabeth Warren even, right? I'm not saying that they're like wildly radical folks, but like they're not even in the administration, right? And people like them aren't even in the administration. So what we get instead is like an Obama retread, Hillary Clinton wing of the Obama administration, which is the more hawkish, right? Retreads that are just being brought back. Because the thing about the Democratic Party, my first love is language, and it may turn out to be my life's love. Uh, the Democratic Party is an undemocratic institution. <laughs> no it's <shit>. fascinating, <laughs> right? It, it's, it's a very like smoke-filled room, DNC-dominated institution. They don't really care what their voters think, and these, these appointments are proof of that. Uh, Lloyd Austin is the most recent. I've gotten myself in a lot of trouble with this article because uh, apparently I'm not supposed to bring up race. Apparently, in fact, uh, it's racist of me to bring up his race. But I thought that was strange because Joe Biden wrote an article titled Why I Appointed Lloyd Austin Secretary of Defense in the Atlantic. It's about 1140 words. And in the process, he said the word uh, African-American, black, diverse or first of like first black this those terms were used like about a dozen or a baker's dozen times. So he's selling this person to us as a victory for a certain race or a certain type of diversity. And, and I'm in favor of a degree of diversity, but uh, I called the article a certain kind of diversity because that's what it is. It's not full diversity because there's nothing diverse about putting another Raytheon plant in charge of the biggest customer of Raytheon, the Pentagon, because we Trump did that too with Mark Esper. Now we're getting Lloyd Austin, but the same people who screamed rightfully about Esper, we haven't heard much of a peep for them from them about Austin. So I think this is a problem. And people say, well, why didn't you bring up Mattis's race when you criticized him? It's like, well, because Mattis wasn't sold to me, wasn't billed as a victory for any particular identity group, except maybe Mad Dogs, right? And like, I just think that we have to, it, it is a bit of a litmus test. If you're, if you're critical of the Biden status quo militarists coming in, uh, then I, then I understand where you're at. I can, I can work with you. If, if you're not, then I'm afraid that what you are is anti-Trump, not anti-war. Just like we found out in 2008 that a lot of people were anti-Bush, not anti-war. And that's dangerous. Right. And that's, as I've been reading through your information and, and your causes, that comes through loud and clear. The anti-war part is is a tenet, should be a plank, should be an absolute fundamental institution of anybody who's a leftist. And so we've got, and, and uh, Caitlin, she wrote about it even more, you know, more critically than you did. You seemed fairly respectful of the reputation of General Austin. You seemed very uh, respectful, even though you, you did make a criticism because he could have just lived on his very ample pension and he could have gone into teaching the way you did. But instead, he went right in. And you said most of them do what he did. They go right into industry, right into the to the dark waters. What do you have? I mean, should we be polite about that? Should we be polite about the absolute blatant in your face fact that they're putting people in front of us because they're black, because they're women, because they're LGBT. And we all, um, as far as I know, everybody on my team wants that, wants women, wants black and people of color and LGBT people in the 
in the cabinet, great. As president, great. Everything, great. But we don't need warmongers. And it, it seems like the corporations are all about Black Lives Matter when it's only about race. But when it becomes about economics, it's a different story. And that's another great niche based on what I've read of your stuff. That's a niche niche. That's my word of the day now that we can fill. You know, we can we can talk about the economic ver economic um, healing that we need that's based on the last 40 plus years of exploitation, neoliberal exploitation versus um, racial justice. Like we can't separate racial justice and other kinds of justice from economic justice. So, it, you know, I, I would love to dis to explore that with you. You know, it's funny that, that my article be described as polite. I think it was in many ways, which is funny because I'm known as this like very impolite writer and a lot of people took a massive exception with the fact that I criticized Austin. But I purposely, uh, and the reason I, I did actually, it wasn't just tactical. I hadn't done my homework on his record enough. And I was asked to write this piece the morning after the appointment, like under duress, like put the, I did it in five hours, you know. And I knew his background, but I, I didn't know his reputation. I usually will do my homework. Like I'll find out what do people who work for him think of him. Uh, it's not that hard to find out. I have enough contacts. I bet. So what I did was I assumed his reputation as stellar, right? I, there's, I got a few barbs in there about some of the assignments he chose, but for the most part, I say, let's assume that all of the hype is true. And I said, if the hype is true, there are still three major reasons that I think he shouldn't be secretary of defense. And the first one is the civil military primacy implications. Right. We shouldn't be living governance by waiver as a way of life. You know, Jack Reed, the senator and West Point graduate from Rhode Island, top Democrat on the Armed Services Committee, said this should only be a once in a generation thing. I think it should be less than that, but let's assume that. Well, here we are again, four years after Mattis, right? And we're going to have a waiver again, most likely. Second reason is the Raytheon one. That's enough reason. That's enough reason. Uh, his pension is $239,000, according to the most recent numbers I've seen from four-star generals. They actually make like more money on the outside than they do on the inside. It's just the negative, these special pensions. It's supposed to make them competitive with the corporate jobs they should supposedly could have if they got out, right? But this is dangerous stuff. And so he, it's ample money, but there's other ways to earn money, right? And I think that telling the American people that they're, and that's my third point, that their choices are so circumscribed that they have to accept what's offered to them, especially if they check certain diversity blocks, that's paternalistic. That's patronizing right. to not only the citizenry in general, but to people of color. The idea that there's not uh, a qualified black candidate, right, who doesn't ring alarm bells on civil military because they haven't been out of the military long enough to not break the law and require a waiver, or that they didn't choose to go work for Raytheon or someone like them. The idea that there's no candidates who are also black who fill that in is a, that to me is truly patronizing and that is problematic, but that's not the language we're hearing. Uh, instead, we're told you will take this choice and you will like it. You didn't like Michelle Flournoy? Fine. We're not going to give you Flournoy. And so people that I respect, like Medea Benjamin and Norman Solomon, who I'm appearing with tomorrow, right, uh, on a, a webinar, they wrote articles that were pretty positive about Austin because they see it as a victory for progressives that we didn't get Flournoy. And, and my thing is it, it does feel a little bit like a 
pick your poison sort of thing. And if that is the threshold, the low threshold for victories, man, things are like even worse than I thought. But I suspected that anyway. I pissed off Norm Solomon um, recently. We were emailing him back and forth, the Bernie or Bust movement. I was on the the committee, the Bernie or Bust committee. It's a division of um, revolt against plutocracy started by Victor Tiffany. And so we were pressuring anyone we perceived to be a sheepdog. So a sheepdog is someone who takes positions that are amenable to the left, but at the end of the day, he tells us to vote for Biden. And so we call those people sheepdogs and we're absolutely against sheepdogging. And so I've criticized Norman openly on this show a few times and, and you know, on Twitter and via email because we have his email address. And so we're frustrated with him that he takes good positions, but then still wants to suck everyone into the Democratic Party where all dreams die and certainly all dreams of peace die. And so it wouldn't bother me at all if you'd bring that up when you when you speak with him. Why are you telling us to try to solve anything inside the Democratic Party after what we saw recently with Bernie, but not just Bernie. You can go back Jesse Jackson. You can go back um, four or five different people turned out to be sheepdogs, maybe wittingly or unwittingly. And and that's the part that bothers me about about some of our leaders on the left that you say are respectable. I'm done respecting them. I'm done respecting the squad. I'm done respecting Bernie because they don't actually have a plan. They don't have a solution. They, they tell us to keep voting for terrible people. And if, I mean, not to be conspiracy theorists, but I think that term is thrown around to like squelch dissent. But if I'm the, if I'm the right, or even if I'm the establishment kind of corporatist intervention, interventionist what better strategy than to keep putting worse and worse like coarse bombastic poor personalities like trump started with bush people forget that he's the king war criminal like i'm so over people who tell me and it's like tends to be white women for some reason in my (laughs) life that's not all who's saying it but i think it's because i'm single uh i constantly hear oh well bush at least he's a he's a good father you know he loves his kids he even loves his country Ellen like oh him. he has a million dead bodies on his hand by conservative estimates direct blood more like it could fill texas okay and everything's bigger in texas i heard so yeah i reject that and um you know i think that the the idea that the biden administration is essentially the front row of john mccain's funeral come to life yeah that's what it is it's it's these former enemies who like laugh and rub elbows and say hey remember that time i said you were a racist oh remember that time i called you a warmonger we sure fooled those people into thinking there was differences between us and that's not hyperbole that's demonstrable yeah. uh, and like i said it's a big middle finger to the progressive wing these appointments and i do think we have to have these hard conversations about where is salvation coming from and where is it not coming from? Uh, we're constantly shown, and I don't know if it's organically happening. I think a lot of it is organic. I'm sort of an Occam's razor guy. Yeah. But wouldn't it be a great tactic if you wanted to continue to you know, fool people into going into that party where the dreams die? My dreams died there. My dreams died in the Democratic Party. I won't ever forgive. It's a blind spot for me. I'll admit it. I will never forget Barack, forgive Barack Obama and I will never forgive the Democratic Party because when I was in Iraq in 2007, 6 and 7, 15 months, I fell for the Obama hope stuff. 
Me too. I was not politically sophisticated. I had come out of a fairly conservative background. I was moving left. And I thought, okay, that's how I'll end this. There'll be no more surges. We'll get this guy. Hillary's wrong because she voted wrong on the war. Obama, at least when he was a state senator, kind of gave an anti-war talk maybe when there was no real cost to him to do it, of course, which I ignored because I just wanted to believe. And then I went on another, another surge that was almost more absurd to Afghanistan. And it was Obama who sent me there. And it was the Democratic Party that did it. And it was Pelosi who said after she gets elected in 2006, I'm taking cutting off the funds off the table. She's still the Speaker of the House. And uh, and the squad will support her probably. And, and she'll co-op them all, you know, and she could fit them all in her expensive refrigerators. And we just fall for it over and over again. And and I think that to, to me, that was like an instructive pivot. It broke my heart, but I'm almost glad it happened because it showed me in a very like tactile sense that this salvation from war and interventionism and cultural and societal militarization, which I'm really anti-imperial and anti-militarist yes. more than anti-war. I don't look at it as discreet any longer. I'm against the system of militarism. Uh, you know, Biden is the ultimate insider. He is the company man's president and he is appointing company men and telling us that the, that that's woke, that there this is somehow a victory and it's not. It's not. We'll see it. It's going to play out before us and we're going to learn a hard lesson again and then we're not going to learn the lesson. We aren't. No, absolutely not. And this is what I want everyone to understand. I don't believe there's any solution within the electoral system. I don't think we can vote our way out of it. I think the only way out is strikes and protests and riots and property damage and arson and and the whole thing, like from 1968 and also from post-World War II. I feel, I feel like that that kind of strength from the people organizing from trade unions from the active communist party we had then the active socialist party we had then that's why fdr who was a scion of the wealthy caved in he didn't he didn't want to be the champion of the people he just wanted to keep his head on his shoulders and he wanted to keep the rich people in charge and so what really changed things was the activism and so I, I don't think there's any solution by voting. I don't think there ever will be. I, I think we can vote again eventually and have it mean something, have choices that are meaningful, but we're not going to get there by voting for it. We're, we're going to get there by forcing it. Yeah, if we're, if we're going to change this system, it really will come from the people and from the grassroots. And that's daunting and it's scary and it's hard to see the positive outcomes, but it has historically always been thus. I mean, it really has. I, I dabble in, I'm a historian sort of in my uh, other life too. I mean, it's what I do for fun and for professional development. FDR said overtly what he was about, just if we chose to listen. He said, I need to push these bills through. He's speaking to his own class to save capitalism. I mean, he said those words, like to save the system, not to ultimately change it. So this misunderstanding of him as like some sort of, uh, you know, uh, Manchurian candidate communist just misunderstands what he even said and what he did. I'll tell you what scares folks, the bonus march, those kinds of events when tens of thousands of veterans of World War One, they knew that the Senate and Congress weren't going to just respond to their votes. So they put their bodies and their families in tents on the ground in D.C., and they had the people with them. The opinion polling was with the veterans yeah. and, and that kind of activism. So what did the what did the powerful do? 
they said, oh, they're secretly Bolsheviks, right? They said they secretly work for Russia. The same stuff we see today. This is it has always been thus. Uh, they're not really American. They said that about veterans of the Great War. Like, like so they'll they'll attack anybody. Your status as a veteran won't save you. But that kind of street activism is is what really puts look, if you want to know if something might work, see if it scares the powerful. Yeah. If it scares them and they overreact, you're onto something. That's right. That's if they right. let you have your polite protest, then maybe you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. That's what happened with Bernie or Bust. There wasn't much talk about Bernie or Bust, but we could see who was losing their shit over it. So then we figured it out. Oh, okay, we must be on the right track. The more pushback we got, the more we realized they're afraid of people that traditionally lean left voting for third party candidates or or not voting for for openly saying no, no more Democrats. We're not going to vote even for the progressives. This is what's really scaring. This even scares People, I think, may be getting paid by the Clinton machine. Cenk Uger, I don't know if you understand how it works with his funding, but he got $20 million from Jeffrey Katzenberg, who's basically a Hillary Clinton bundler. And so so he tells us, okay, I love Bernie. He tells us we, we need to take big money out of politics. He says a lot of things right. But then in the end, he says, but you need to vote for Hillary. And you need to vote for Joe Biden. And I'm thinking, well, they're paying you. That's not a big surprise. They're paying you $20 million. And other supposed lefty pundits take a lot of direction from Jenk. Some of them, like Jimmy Dore, got their start on his show. And so they won't openly criticize him. And they won't take these positions that are, like you say, scary to the oligarchy. Because if you say okay, we're not going to vote for you anymore. We're not going to vote for corporates anymore. They they lose then the impression that we consent. They don't have our consent anymore. And without our consent, then it's, then it's going to turn against them. And the people are going to turn against them. It's this whole mirage of consent. And so we know we're onto something. When we tell people, absolutely, under no circumstances, should you ever vote for a corporatist, the pushback comes not only from the moderates and the right wing. Well, the right wingers don't even care. They're fine with it. But but the pushback comes from supposed leftists, supposed progressives. They're the ones who say, oh, no, you can't leave the Democratic Party. You know, it's unprecedented how bad Trump is. We, we've got to vote against Trump no matter what. You're you're a commie. You're a, a horrible person. You're a privileged person. If, if you aren't willing to vote for the lesser evil candidate. And so the harder we push on that, the more I'm sure that even though we're a very small group that, that consistently pushes that way, we're, the, we're on the right side. What they want is democracy as theater. Yeah. You know, as, as sort of a, um, you know, it's just this recurring event that we have where we sort of like rubber stamp and then they just do what they want right right and right. and and this is this is that's democracy in the minds of the people who speak loudest about democracy oftentimes and that privilege point is an important one and i realize that what we're, we're we got two white males here talking about this and so we're already strikes against us for even having this conversation but i don't much care i really don't because this is too important it is a twisted system indeed right 
that has gone so far towards its logical conclusion that what we're instructed is this. Um, you have to vote. It's, it's a privileged thing if you don't support the Pelosi wing, the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, because you have to do it on behalf of the real victims, which are people of color in America, because there are real costs if you don't. Okay, um, there are real costs to they, these are victimized peoples historically and, and continually. But we're told that salvation for them has to come through the people who wrote the crime bills and lied about super predators, right? Clinton and Biden. And it's like, what a twisted system. Yeah, It's come full circle. And it's exposing itself if we only kept our eyes open. And not enough people are willing to do that. And they're scared. They're scared of the attacks. I don't like the attacks either. It is not fun to be called a racist by your own people, right? By your own, like, vaguely lefty people. It, it is not fun. It, it, is, it is difficult to, to swallow. But at some point, it's not about you anymore. It's about the things you say you believe in. And if you say you believe in them, you have to live those values. And that requires honesty. And so I'm willing to have these debates with people, but like, let's do it in a collegial manner and let's not go right to the ad, ad hominem because that's what they do. That's what they do. And I said, we need to take this debate seriously. When Jimmy Dore and Chris Hedges are on one side and Chomsky and Cornell West are on the other, <laughs> whatever you think of those four people, that's a serious civil war within the vague left, right? And And, and I think we have to take that conversation seriously and not just dismiss the Chris Hedges of the world. Oh, cause we don't like their position on Biden. Like, no, that person has been there and done that, you know, for the longest time. Like this is serious stuff. This is not to be taken lightly and to just be dismissed as, Oh, well, you're a racist or oh, you're privileged. No, this is real. This is a real debate. And how do you come down on it? You know, in general, I've rejected the democratic and the Republican parties all but completely. Um, this year, I couldn't, for the first time, I couldn't come out and be a champion for Joe Biden. Like, I just, I couldn't do it. I don't know. Something was was broken inside me. Um, you know, I, I'll admit that I didn't come out and take as strong of a position as like, don't vote for Biden. I just refused to endorse somebody. I didn't really necessarily think that was my role anyway, although it's becoming more as I get more followers and stuff that people want to know. But I didn't, I just didn't have it in me. I didn't have championing Biden in me. And that caused me a lot of flack. I got way more attacks, like I said, from the Democrats, from the left than I ever did from the right. Um, because I touched their sacred cow. And then they said, well, you're actually secretly working for Trump. Yeah. And to me that they just outed themselves. They just, it's instructive when people do that, when they go watch how they attack you, you learn about them, you find out what's kind of in their hearts. And when they say that by refusing to just be like on the Biden train, that means you work for Trump, they're letting you know what they're really about. They, they're letting you know what they value, what they're trying to protect. And, and it's not the victims. It really isn't. And they make it very clear. So I called Chomsky a coward. And I called, more politely, I called um, Cornell a coward. And so I, I don't know where where else to say it. You can say tactical, like there's a guy called Vosh on YouTube. And then a lot of the other people, Sam Cedar and David Pakman, and, and they'll tell you, we got to be strategic. We've got to play the game. And I said, no, you need to have principles. 
you need to to look in the mirror and see a reflection looking back. And so I said, Cornell West, no, you can't tell us it's okay to vote for Biden. You can't tell us you're voting for Biden. Same with um, even Brianna Joy Gray or Turner. I always call her Tina Turner, um, Nina Turner. You know, we we can't we can't tell people that it's okay to vote for Biden under any circumstances because then we we have to look. Well, who's paying you to say that? Or or we have to at least wonder. Do you have principles that stand the test? And I'd say no. I don't think we can have a movement for a people's party trying to follow somebody like Chris Hedges who doesn't compromise and somebody like Cornell West who does compromise. I don't see that as a movement. I don't see that's a a non-starter. You know, I mean, I I guess I've hedged for that. I mean, I've hedged to some extent, Uh, you know, I haven't just rejected some of the people that were, were mentioning. Uh, I disagree with them in many cases and, and profoundly so, and, I, I was critical of my last podcast before the election was on the foreign policy history of Joe Biden. And it was pretty critical, right? I just played his own words back. And at no point during that podcast did I say, uh, okay, so everyone vote for Trump. No. But even that decision to do what I thought was actually, uh, if anything, a pulling of punches. I mean, I didn't even think it was that hardcore, but just the decision to do it got me a lot of flack. Um, that we, you know, we shouldn't even be discussing this, but what that ends up being is it's, it limits the permissible boundaries of debate and dissent. When we say Trump is so bad. So now you're not even really allowed to talk about Biden. You're not even allowed to bring up things he said on video because that's not polite because that helps the enemy. All right. That's scary talk. That is Orwellian stuff. And I went back and read a bunch of old Orwell essays that I've been kind of quoting recent, recently on this subject, because here's the deal. Now we're gonna, we're gonna inaugurate Joe Biden. History didn't end on election day. It turns out it's gonna keep rolling on. So now what? And we're very much in a now what moment. And, and yet we won't leave the election behind. We're still told, no, 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 no. Yes, Biden may have won, but you're not. You're still not allowed to criticize him yet. Well, when am I allowed? Like, when is when is that okay? I, I just, I think that we are, we police ourselves. The state doesn't need to police our patriotism. Doesn't need to put a whole lot of people in prison. It prefers not to. Actually, it would rather have us police ourselves, right? Have us kind of uh limit our speech self-censor and that's i think a lot of what we are seeing in the broader vague sort of left movement is is a self-policing and a self-censorship i think it's dangerous and i think we're gonna we're gonna eat those words again and we're seeing it with these appointments which are thumbing their nose right at us and they yeah. don't care they don't care what we think they don't care what we want if we don't it's theater it's not democracy sorry it's not it's not it's theater it's not democracy i mean they don't yeah. they don't want they, they're not responsive to us right so if they don't censor us if we don't censor ourselves the algorithms on youtube and twitter will facebook they that i don't know if you've been bumping into that but a lot of people who are are impolite and hard to deal with they just wish we'd shut up there there are lots of other ways too besides self-censorship but but i feel it a little bit i'm not I'm not at all worried about pissing people off in in my own family, in my own 
profession. I just don't care. I don't, I'm past it. And I guess it's my age probably, but it's also just being irascible. I was irascible when I was younger and I don't care anymore. I don't care if they're upset with me and I don't feel that pressure to change, to watch my tone. And I think without that irascibility, we're going to lose everything. I think it's to the point with the climate and and you know, we're up against a, a wall and we just have to fight back. We can't we can't wait for their slow incremental step-by-step solutions that they never intend to put in place. And I and I appreciate your candor because now maybe some other show we we should talk about it because I have students that go especially music students. I'm a music teacher that'll go into the military to get their school paid for. And I was going to go into the Marines with a couple of my friends out of high school. And then I decided, you decided to be a teacher later in your life. And I decided earlier, but I, I wanted, I wanted to serve my country in a meaningful way. I thought about it. I came like you did from a more um, conservative background than most college professors. And I wanted to do that. But then as I thought about it, I thought, well, even then, even at 18 years old, I knew that we weren't the good guys all the time. And I thought if I, you know, and I, I remember the the people my dad's age that that did go to Vietnam and who didn't. And there there were some moral, they, they had moral struggles when they got back. Did I do the right thing? Should I have been in the military? Was Was that a moral decision? Was that honorable? And honor and integrity is what they were all about. My grandpa in World War II, that's what people in the armed forces were all about to me was honor and integrity. But yet when it came down to it, that's what stopped me. I didn't think I could have integrity. I knew I could as a teacher, but now I wonder about that. But, but you know, but as a, I, I didn't think I could do that. And, and that's a, maybe a tough subject, but I'm sure you're brave enough for it. And, and I'd love to, to hear sure. your thoughts about that in, in the future. Well, I, I will say this. What year, if you don't want me dating you, what year were you 18? What year were you making that decision? My first election was 1980. Okay. So when you were deciding whether to like enlist in the Marines and, you know, first time that you're, you know, of age to, to vote, a lot of folks want us to believe that we just need to go back to a, like a status quo. Like there was some sort of mythical time when things were better either before Trump or before Bush or before 9-11. And my point as a historian has always been the obscenity was always there and the empire was was always churning. So like in 1980, you know, I could list off a million things that we were doing, but one of them, for example, in those early Reagan years and late Carter years, we were supporting apartheid in South Africa. We were supporting uh, Rhodesia indirectly, we were, all of that. We were supporting death squads that were murdering priests in latin america all this was going on in other words it's always been thus i always go back to that there was always good reason to reject the system there was always good reason to reject american foreign policy you know i play a game with folks it's like a parlor game like name a year and i'll tell you what the american empire was up to like any year like i love testing myself it's not hard it's not hard if you're even reasonably well read what you did by choosing teaching as a better way to serve your nation at 18 rather than the Marines with their impeccable uniforms, right? It's, they're hard not to fall for. Um, it's been working forever. 
you know, that's a, that's, that's rare. I mean, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your butt. Like that's a rare thing. Cause most of us are just like kind of raised in these like toxic masculine kind of communities. And this idea that there's not that the, the, the highest form of human behavior is to ante up and join the military. And, uh, our brains aren't even really fully developed at 17 and 18. And yet that's when we make those decisions and we're uh, you're up against a lot to make the right call. You really are. You're, you're up against forces that are like more strong and powerful than, than any individual. We, the individual is up, the principled individual is up against forces that are so large, you know, cultural forces of militarism. And I have buddies in the anti-war veteran community who go into schools and counter recruit, right? They go into the schools the day that the Marine shows up and is dressed blues. And they've been there and done that these vets most of them have actually seen way more combat than that 21 year old recruiter who's coming in you know just because of the nature of you know the wars have slowed down in terms of american ground combat but those kids they're a captive audience and you're up against forces they're gonna pick that marine for a million reasons poverty draft reasons cultural militarism masculinity you name it but this is a tough thing to fight the machine is very powerful and it breeds apathy in the but they count on your apathy yeah Good. That was a good short answer. I hope we can we can talk about that again sometime. Um, you're, I'm going to read more of your articles. I'm going to figure out where you're coming from. And I have certain people that I can go to when when the topics keep circling around. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep up with you on Twitter and, and hopefully um, have more chances. I, I actually read one of your articles on the show I taped this morning. That'll come out in a few days. And then this will come out right after that, so that'll be good, and and we'll see what develops after that. Well, I know there'll be plenty to talk about. Uh, yeah, you know, there, there's there's never a shortage of subjects at all. Absolutely. So thank you for the for the brief time we had so far, and I hope we can talk again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to do it.